God is like the sun. You cannot always look at it, but without it, you cannot look at anything else. The way we find ourselves is by staring into the sun. Well, here we are again, staring into the sun. Uh, we are excited. Two brothers approaching turbulent issues of life and culture from two different perspectives, hoping to capture the deeper truths that explode from the beautiful collision of head and heart. I'm so excited to be here together uh, with my brothers today. Uh, I'm John, and I'm the pastor of the duo. <laughs> And I'm Rob. I'm the psychologist of the duo. And uh, today we're hoping to get into the concept of perfectionism. So last time we talked, you, you mentioned this scripture about be perfect as I am perfect. And I, I want to share some thoughts about that. My mind's been digging into that lately. It's going to be an easy one because, well, you know. I'm perfect. <laughs> I, I was the perfect child. Well, yeah, I was going to say I was, but no, you're right. Actually, growing up, you were you were God's chosen. Every time Rob entered a room, a light appeared, and his little <laughs> fingers tinkled over the tinkled is a bad word, but twinkled over the piano keys. And uh-huh. yeah, you were you were you were pretty close to okay. perfect, Rabo. Okay. <laughs> He's so, moving so on. This, He's moving this is on. A, I'm moving on. This is a, a concept that's actually kind of near to me because I'm quite familiar with what it can do um, as far mm. as making life better, but also how it can become a, a pretty big problem. So I kind of, I want to think about this in two directions. The first one, and, and I'd love your feedback as I think about this, but I, one way to think about perfectionism is uh, pursuing being better as a person. So you, you take a, Jesus would be an example of this, this, this perfect target. When, when he says, be perfect as I am perfect, it's, it's like, I am the model, I am the target, follow after me. And I think there's something really good in that. When you say, when you talk about my p- past as a piano player, there, there was something I had in mind of, I know what perfection sounds like, I think. And I'm very interested in getting there. And one of the benefits of that was I worked very, very hard to improve. And so if we think of perfectionism or be perfect design perfect is something like, Find the perfect or the target that you're going after and then compare where you're at right now compared to that. And from that comparison usually comes pretty unpleasant feelings, but it also gives you a a, a path of like, okay, I have a direction to go as far as where I want to go next to improve. So a lot of times people have negative connotations with perfectionism because they see where it causes problems. But I think there's a way to look at it that is really positive, which is about me getting better as a human. And and it, it definitely bears fruit when you look at people who get really good at things. They they have a target and they really discipline themselves to pursue it. Right. Well, and just hearing you talk, I think the problem arises though when I have a target that I can't achieve. You know what? What do we do with it? Because it's all well and good, and I'm all like, I think that's the the motivation of most of our lives so if not all of us at some point it just creates different outcomes within each individual's life like many of us see a target and we reach it and we it motivates us to be better and to be the best version of ourselves that we can be but the problems always arise whether we have um uh, a perspective of what the mark should be that's unrealistic and we can't attain it or maybe it's too low and we can't achieve it and it doesn't mean anything for us. I think there's the outcome of that perception of life is where I think things get a little messy 
in us and in our relationships for sure. Well, yeah, and certainly our bodies give us feedback when we're when we're not hitting the mark, we get feedback. It feels gross. And when we do, when we succeed at something we weren't as good at before, it feels really great. It's motivating to be better. But you're saying, what if the target is something unattainable? So what, what do you think that, that this, I think, is something confusing for a lot of people when they enter a church or when they come across a scripture like this? We have our current understanding of, well, I think I know what perfect is. And a lot of times perfect might be, I don't make any errors in my behavior, in my feeling, or in my thinking. That is what that scripture is asking of me. Um, th- that's certainly what I hear people talk about when they wrestle with uh, perfectionism, and especially in religious sense, scrupulosity of, of trying to be perfect as God is perfect. Well, yeah, and we can dive more into what I think about that passage of scripture. And I think there's Please. definitely kind of like two, two lanes here. One is when you enter into a faith perspective and you hear a scripture like this, um, specifically from Matthew chapter five, verse 48, for those of you who are wondering, we're not just pulling verses up or making verses up. It actually says, be perfect as I am perfect. Uh, that's a, that's a command from, uh, from God, from Jesus into our lives. So there's this faith perspective thing, but it's interesting to me though, because it's not just a faith thing. This is like built in to our core. I believe it's built into like our core DNA this desire to be different than we currently are, you know, and I think most people go through life like feeling that tension and wanting to be better. Uh, Sometimes you get to a place in life where you're okay with where you are. And I don't know if that's because you just either achieved what you felt like was your, your goal, or you've just relented and, and learned that you can't achieve certain goals and you just start conceding to who you are. So I think, I, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff to talk about, not just in a faith perspective, but what, what drives our desire or need to be perfect or our desire or need to be better within us as people. Um, so I don't know how to, how to unpack that. I think I would love to hear you talk about that core thing. So let me jump back though. This perfect thing, I think as we, just from a pastoral perspective, right? Many of us see that word and it, it feels a little, nah, like who can be perfect, right? And then we enter into a faith journey and we think, oh, this is going to help my life be better. And we hear God say things like this, like be perfect design. So then the mark all of a sudden is not what I want it to be. All of a sudden the mark is God, right? Be, be perfect as I am perfect. And I think we we enter in, and legalism has a lot to play with this, the last hundred years of the evangelical movement within Western culture, where we miss, I think we've misunderstood and misinterpreted what this word really is about. Um, Other translations would make the word, be holy as I am holy, instead of perfect. Which, dear God, is that worse? Yeah, <laughs> so not saying, only do you have to be perfect, you have to be holy. <laughs> and when you say legalism, I'm, I'm curious what you mean when you say that. So to, to have certain confines within what it means to be a perfect God follower. So legalism, I think, just puts confines on or defines what that is, right? Or the heart of, and there's negative um, sides of legalism, but, the, but also came out of the heart of wanting to be like God. So then you put stipulations on, well, okay, what does it mean to be like God? We can't just say, be like God. Well, what the heck does that mean? Well, you know, don't do this, don't do this, do this, do this, don't, you know, don't wear rings, don't dance, don't, you know, uh, say nice things, don't drink alcohol, you know, be, be the, this is what it means to be like God or to be perfect. And out of, out of that came 
what I, you know, as a pastor that I deal with all the time, these negative outcomes from people who've lived in that culture and now have can't achieve those things or they're stuck in so much anxiety because they're trying to achieve those things and they never can that it's just devastated their relationship with God and others. Yes, and and I I think there's a connection point here as I see from a clinical psychology perspective is where this becomes pathological for someone is is right in that area of uh, I'm pursuing something that's not achievable. That that's definitely where it begins to become pathological because Going back to what I was saying before about pursuing competence, um, our bodies give us wonderful feedback when we are moving towards the achieving of competence and then we get feedback that we've achieved it. That's really, it gives us really positive feedback. It feels really good, but there's an inverse process, right? So when, when we get feedback from the environment that we are not achieving, it affects your serotonin systems and you experience something that we would call you know, depression, anxiety, things like that. Um, and so uh, this is, again, where, where it, it becomes pathological, where we're talking about something that's not achievable. So I want to talk this through a moment. So, so you have your anxiety system, okay? Um, a classic example I like to use is, you walk into the street and you look out and there's a bus coming at you, okay? Your fear system in your body is geared towards identifying the threat, coming up with the most catastrophic interpretation of the threat, and then coming up with some sort of decisive action to alleviate that threat, okay? So you see the bus and you say, oh my goodness, it's going to hit me. You jump out of the way, fueled by adrenaline and stress hormones, and then you feel relief, okay? That's a very effective system that keeps us very safe. Now, it becomes more complicated when the thing I'm afraid of is something like God's rejection or in the sense of this scripture, be perfect as I am perfect. What happens when I'm not? And if the thing that I'm very afraid of is that God would reject me and say, for example, uh, damn me to hell or something like that, then I've got something that is much less clear of not only is it achievable, but the second point is it's I can't tell if I'm on the right track or when I've achieved it. Okay, um, so so say for example, I'm I'm worried that I'm having a thought that's displeasing to God. This is often an issue with scrupulosity. Well, the way my body works, it would call me to watch for and obsessively look for situations that might lead to me being displeasing to God. So it causes the person to pay incredible attention to the thoughts that they're having. This generates anxiety because it, it, it takes the thing that I'm afraid of in the future, which is God rejecting me, and brings it into the present in the form of anxiety. Anxiety is like future fear, right? So then I feel anxiety. Well, what relieves anxiety is competence or solving the thing. Well, in the case of something you can't achieve or you don't know necessarily if you're achieving it, we come up with just things to do, right? So I maybe compulsively will repent. Yeah, somebody might apologize frequently um, in an effort to, you know, maybe if I apologize just the right way or if I do just the right thing, maybe that will then absolve the mistake. And for particularly for individuals with OCD, this gets wrapped into a pretty pathological cycle where their life becomes very small. It's an incredible time drain where they're spending increasing amount of time trying to alleviate this anxiety. But the problem is, is at the end result, whatever I do, I don't actually like like where you get to see that the bus didn't hit you in the context of things like this. You don't actually get to see, did the thing I do actually work? 
And so then a person is just caught in this constant loop of anxiety and avoidance and compulsive behaviors that this is where I can see it gets really pathological, this type of scripture with somebody who has anxiety or with OCD. (laughs) Anxiety is a great word. And it grieves my heart actually as a pastor to see people who are feeling anxiety in parallel to their relationship with God. Because I, I don't think that's how God m- made it or designed it for us to experience. And, and I, I don't know, as I heard you talk, I think the root, the root of a lot of this is this misunderstanding that our relationship with God somehow is, is transactional. So, for example, you know, the, the, if I do these things, then I'm going to be perfect and God will be happy with me. But if I don't do these things, then I'm not perfect and then somehow there will be a consequence. For me, that whole arrangement is, and I talk about this all the time when I'm communicating with our church community, is that it's transactional. And we as humans, we, we, I feel like the more I'm around other humans, we, this is just like our default way of seeing the world, that I do things and things happen, right? Or if I don't do things, then things, I have consequence and I have uh, reward or, or however that's you want to explain that's that. That's the example of the bus, right? If I move, right. I don't get hit. If I stay, I get hit. There's a transaction right. there. And so we move that into our relationship with God, yet the, the really frustrating thing about our, what I've experienced with, this relation, with my relationship with God and what I think he wants to do in us is that he wants to like, push transaction off the table. He said, transaction is not a part of this equation. So with God, very frustrating and confusing because God always gives us what we don't deserve and never gives us what we do deserve. It's like backwards. It's like upside down, right? So, and for me, this ties back into our misunderstanding of this passage of scripture. Be perfect as I am perfect. If we instead understand it as be holy as I am holy. And my understanding of holiness is this image of wholeness, right? I, I, when I preach about this, I talk about how holiness is wholeness, that they're, they're synonymous, you know, they mean the same thing, where we have this image of God who shows us what the best life looks like. And he, in fact, created us to live in reflection of that best life. And so this, this, in, this command is really an invitation that says, it, when, I enter, when you enter into a relationship with me, I want you to learn, it's almost like a self-discovery thing, I want you to learn how to be whole as I am whole. And and it's, it's not about doing things, but it's about discovering who God made you to be from the first place. And I think so. I think we, sometimes we start from the wrong starting point with this whole relationship with God thing and perfection. And it, and it really drives all of what we we're talking about. What, but what would it look like? And I don't know how this translates into your, your world with someone, you know, because I completely get these, you know, what you're talking about and leaning into this understanding of the things that I do cause certain things in my life and how, how that stirs up anxiety with me in me. But what happens if we started back from the beginning, instead of we're thinking about what I have to do, thinking of who, and for me, it's hard because I always go back to a faith perspective. Who is, who am I discovering God has made me to be and resting in that changes the whole trajectory of this journey for me. I don't know. I, I feel like that's super, ambiguous, you know, but. Well, let me respond. I, it got me thinking about the treatment directions for OCD in particular. Um, there's something really important. Um, uh, the treatment direction for OCD and phobias, um, uh, specific phobias, um, is called exposure and response prevention. 
Um, and one really important part of it is, okay, so uh, the general concept of it is um, once I decide that the thing I'm afraid of is not rational to be afraid of, even though my body reacts like it is, then I need to engage in a process of exposing myself to the thing I'm afraid of and prevent my compulsive behavior, whatever that is, whether it's hand washing or confessing or uh, tur- turning, you know, turning o- open a lock and closing a lock over and over. Uh, once I realize that that's not a rational way to keep my home safe, for example, but my body gives me tons of anxiety around doing it and I don't feel relief until I do it. The path forward is to expose myself to the situation I'm afraid of, prevent the compulsive response, and then let my body experience what happens. Okay, and in and, and, uh, and often cases, this is really unpleasant, but uh, what can happen is a couple things then build. It's tolerance and then competence builds as a person does this, as they, as they see that they do have what it takes to be on the elevator and they can actually do it. Um, th- this, is the, this is the pathway to it. Now, an important element of it, though, is it has to be voluntarily chosen. Okay. So if I had one of my patients that was afraid of jumping off a diving board, for example, like phobic of it or being on an airplane, if I just pick them up and forcibly toss them off the board or if a parent does this or whatever, or if I take them onto an airplane, it does not have the benefits in the brain structure. The person actually uh, will actually be irate with you and not any better. It has to be freely chosen. Um, and, and I thought of that when you were sharing of um, – uh, if if we're in a position where we're compelled by someone else or by God, for example, uh, to behave in a certain way, it, it we're starting in the wrong place. And I, th- I thought of that when you were talking about legalism. It's, it's I'm compelled by my fear that you're going to destroy me or hate me, and that's why I do this. It made me think of parenting children, how, how parenting has to transition from, I make you do the right thing because if I don't, you'll hurt yourself. It has to transition at some point as they develop to they're going to figure out their reasons for why they're going to choose these right things for themselves. That's how it works. And I wonder if that has, as you hear that, if, if that has some resonance with what you think about how we relate to God and how we approach this whole thing. Absolutely. I think it comes back to a common conversation I have within the church and I hear from people is the difference between um, fear as motivation and love as motivation. And I think they're they're drastic uh, indifference because when I'm when I'm motivated motivated by fear to do something, uh, it's a different sort of motivation um, because I, I fear consequence. I fear something negative happening to me if I if I don't do something. Uh, like for example, in, in faith, right? I'm I go to God because I don't want to burn in hell, you know. So so I I do, and in that. In that place, I think we do just enough not to get, not to have the bad thing happen to us, which is a whole completely different motivation, I think, than love. Where, as if someone, you know, <laughs> when I when I fell in love with my wife, like I, my I was consumed, <laughs> like my I was obsessed. My actions changed every waking moment. I wanted to be with her. When I was near her, I wanted to physically touch her, (laughs) you know? I mean, everything within me was just consumed with being near her because I was motivated by love and it wasn't doing the bare minimum. So something didn't happen to me. It was doing, it was doing the the complete opposite where I was all in because I wanted as much of it and as much relational contact as possible because I was motivated by love. And I think this is the same sort of place that God wants us to see how 
drastically different these understandings are when he says he he doesn't command us to be perfect as I'm perfect. He invites us to be holy as I'm holy. And when that's centered around seeing God as not someone who's going to like send down lightning bolts of consequence on us when we don't do certain things, but instead a God who enters into our brokenness and mess, our dysfunctions and our pain, which is oftentimes the reason we have anxiety and fear in the first place. When he enters into it and shows us that nothing he does is transactional the very nature of who Jesus is and what he accomplished for us on the cross is that he gives people who deserve all of the consequence instead he gives them everything they don't deserve he gives us grace and love and forgiveness that it that changes the way I'm motivated to live my best life and something that you said Rob that really um keyed me into how this works is that it invites us and I think it prompts responses of my will to do something. Whereas if I'm afraid of something, sometimes it's involuntary, right? I I duck in fear when somebody's like, when God's sending a meteor meteor down to destroy me, like I'm going to get out of the way. I don't want to die, you know, but that's almost involuntary. It's almost out of my control. But when God enters in in love, it prompts a response of my own will to move towards it. And I think that changes everything. And, and it certainly psychologically changes. I, w- w- I think a sign of wellness and health is creativity and um, uh, you know, the, the capacity to adapt. And that creativity um, comes from a place of willingness, right? Whereas when, when we experience pathology, usually we find that our our life gets smaller, our, our potential responses get a lot smaller, <clears throat> much more drastic. And so when we're coming from a place of fear, things get more rigid. We lose more time. We lose more creativity. We, we're not as generative. We don't make things. We, we close in. And um, my reaction as you're talking about you know, is coming from a position of acceptance and love and then a call to perfection or holiness. Um, the, the way we get to creativity as a person, uh, if, if it, if it's coming from fear, it, it doesn't, it doesn't work. Um, and I, I think as I think historically, um, uh, like major cultural movements and, uh, political movements, uh, and religious movements, uh, when they're, f- when they're rooted in, f- in fear motivating behaviors, um, I think I tend to not see creative and generative capacity. I tend to see things kind of come close in and self-destruct. Whereas, as I hear you talking about, if I'm coming from a position of acceptance and love, it's not that I still don't pursue being better. And I think this is a, um, a common criticism of this concept is, you know, if, if, if I'm rooted in just acceptance, then I, then I'll just, I'll just be fine, um, wasting away. Um, and, and I think the, the call for, at least on a psychological end, the pursuit of being healthy is definitely not wasting away. Wasting away is, is what happens to us when we're sick, when we're depressed, uh, when we're well, we are, we are pushing, we are creative, we're making things, we are getting better at things, we're more competent. Um, but if, if what's driving us is fear, that tends to they, they tend to not go together. I think it's that rest. When, something you said too about this idea that um, 
when I when I accept when I have love or acceptance that I somehow we just are we stop we stop growing. And I, I love that about this invitation of God that to to be holy as I'm holy is a is an invitation to my best life. You know, and the but one thing we discover and I said in the name of our of our podcast staring into the sun. One thing we discover when we come under the light of God and all of His invitations are walking closer to that light, it reveals more of our lives that actually aren't our best. You know, and it reveals our brokenness and reveals our pain. Like it's, it's facing. And so that process then, and I, I encounter this a lot with people on, on a faith journey when they discover that God loves them or they hear this message for the first time and then just want to enter in and just rest in it. And then they're, then they get all like worked up because all of a sudden then God starts to bring a, out to the surface all the things that he really wants to change and we can real easily misinterpret that as well God doesn't love me or or I'm again I'm falling back into these old patterns of I don't want to I don't want to look at all this junk I just want God to love me and make me feel better when really our path to feeling better is looking at the dysfunctional parts of our lives that are keeping us from the life that God is inviting us to so it's I think you're right it's this both and it's 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 starting from a different place God loves and accepts me and is not transactional in nature and that coming drawing close to him also exposes brokenness and dysfunctionism of my life that are keeping me from living in the way that God wants me to live that is my best life in fact Yes, and I think we're on to something that's really true, because as I hear you say that, I, my, my brain pinged to several things. This concept in exposure therapy where the person willingly faces the thing they're afraid of. Mm-hmm. Um, it also makes me think of, in psychoanalytic psychology, um, uh, Carl Jung, there's this concept of the shadow, um, and, and this happens in therapy all the time, and it makes me think it's why therapy is often a spiritual journey as much as it is a psychological one is because oftentimes people come to therapy to take a, an open-eyed, clear look at the shadow, which is what's going wrong in them and around them. And that's a hard thing to look at. And it also made me think uh, there, there's, a, there's an Old Testament um, text uh, with the Israelites as they're, as they're wandering in the desert where they're, they're overtaken by serpents. And uh, God tells Moses to fashion this bronze serpent. And everyone that comes and looks at the serpent will be saved in a sense. And something very true about the we have to take a good, hard look willingly we have to willingly take a look at it. And that is our path to healing. That's our path to improvement. But if, if our reason for looking is out of fear or compulsion, it doesn't work. And practically and physiologically, it doesn't work. Like I said before, in the brain, the changes don't happen in the brain unless the person willingly does it. Yeah, two things come to mind. First, that is such a beautiful story. And if you don't, if, if as a listener, um, I, I hope you go back and read that and connect it to the image of who Christ is, is as Christ is lifted up in the same way that the snake, I mean, he was told to, to put it in it so that others could look, look up upon it. It's lifted up for their healing. And in the same way, Christ is lifted up on the cross as an image of death, the consequence of our brokenness, but also the pathway to our best life. And we have to we have to look upon him and all of its all of its darkness, but also that's the miracle of God as he takes the place that represents the thing that is most broken in us and actually makes it the birthplace of our new life. And that's what I love about faith. Yeah, it's it's and I we just finished Easter up here uh, and 
we, we all the time in the church want to say, he's risen, he's risen indeed. God claimed victory over death, you know? And I said, no, that's not really the truth. God didn't claim victory over the, over death. He actually took it and transformed it and made it something completely different. He didn't do away with death. He made death the place where you find your best life. Like in order for us to live, he says in scripture, that we have to come and die. We have to lay down ourselves. We have to surrender. We have to sacrifice. All these uh, these images of the thing. We I think sometimes we'd rather snap, have God just come and snap his fingers and make death not the thing we have to do, right? We just get to live. We get to live our best life. But really, the the pathway to our best life is through death. It's through, and, and in that way, in the same way, it, it causes us to look up upon it, right? And like you were saying, to look at our deepest, darkest places. So in, in your world of psychology and counseling, in the church, the the parallel to that is confession. That's why God, in always, I mean, gosh, spend any time in Scripture, and there's always this message of here's the promise of the life I have for you. Now confess and repent, right? It, it means and confession means to speak with your mouth the truth of who you are right now, in the present moment, and the truth of who I am. That's hard to deal with sometimes, right? But but God invites us, confess it. Speak the truth of who you are, and then repent. Repentance means once you've confessed it and spoken you are, you get to see the way out and the way towards your best life. And repentance then is a movement away from who you are towards who I've invited you to be. Be holy as I am holy. So you're you're not where who I've made you to be, but in there you is is who I've made you to be, if that makes sense. Confess it. Confess the brokenness, and then turn and, and move towards me in repentance. Uh, I love, I love the how they they land in both worlds. The thing you you were I was, as you were talking, I'm like, confession, repentance. That's what you're saying. Like, <laughs> and and uh, often people are surprised when they come into therapy, good therapy, um, that results in transformation does this very thing. Um, it, it's certainly a supportive and, and it helps to have someone, you know, cares about you, but then it, it if transformation happens, it, it has to transition into this area of similar to what we talked about last time. I have to stare at the thing that is really, really hard to look at. And that is the place of transformation. And we have metaphors for it in psychology and psychotherapy. We, we have, uh, symbols and narrative of it in, in Christian faith and the narrative of, of the gospel. Um, and, and I think that points to something very true, which is, uh, when we're, when we're motivated by our own free choice to take a look at those hard places and creatively lean out into, uh, transformation, transformation can and does happen. This concept of confession and repentance, meeting God in a place of transformation. Uh, I think, that, yes, we're onto something very real and true here. Yeah. Uh, and something that I think is valuable as well is as we, as we lean into this, I think a lot of times we can get so caught up on trying to trying to be better and we get so focused inwardly on my, our own lives. We, we miss um, number one, as God invites us to our best life, it moves us outside of this um, relentless and endless pursuit of trying to achieve something that um, is really unachievable in the first place. And we, uh, you know, you were kind of mentioning this before, we lose time, you know, because we're just stuck in this rhythm and pattern. And God wants to invite us out of that in a, in a lot of ways, I think, to be present and see who he's made us to be, but also to see how that, that broken cycle affected other people in our lives. You know, I, I had to do this just recently. I was, I was at home and 
when I have to do projects at home, most of the time I'm okay, but there's sometimes when I'm not okay, <laughs> when plumbing or electricity are involved, I like I know how to do them, but something happens deep within the pit of my soul when I do plumbing and electricity, because I get, <laughs> inevitably, I get shocked and water ends up where it's not supposed to be and things never work the way I want them to. But that's not really the problem. The problem is there, and a deep anger arises in me, right? And a lot of times I don't want, I don't, I don't want to see it. And it happened just this past week. But who, who that anger affects is not just me. My children like scattered, you know, and I heard them kind of talking about it. And I was, I was spending time um, working on my message for this coming Sunday. And our big idea for this coming Sunday is we are so busy living our own lives that we often miss out on our best life. And God was like poking at me with this question of what, what do other people encounter when they come into contact with my life? Like, what is the outcome of other people? when they come into contact with my life. And he was calling to mind this, my brokenness, right? I didn't want to see it. I was angry. And I just kind of always said, well, it's just because I'm doing a project. Like, get out of my way. <laughs> but really, it's, it wasn't just affecting me. It was affecting how my kids responded to me. And the things we face a lot of times, I think we get so stuck in this world of I need to be better or I need to protect my life from these things happening or I need to never do plumbing again so I don't feel this way. But really the real work of me being better was to look at what my anger did to my kids and, and how, how the way I acted affected my kids and to see that um, God wanted me to move in a better way. But it, I couldn't move in a better way until I looked, looked at my anger in the face, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yes, and that, that can be a really scary thing to do because uh, oftentimes I think myself included, we're really afraid of the effect that we're having on other people. But on the other side of that fear and facing it, if we can have the humility to do it, I, I see this often with the patients who do the really hard work of dealing with OCD and exposing themselves to things that they're afraid of. On the other side are some really beautiful, bright things like life opens up. It, it, it shows me that I do have the capacity to positively impact other people and that feels really, really good. I have the capacity to be more free, to be more creative, to be more open. So, so there's two things in there, this fear that is crippling, but there's also this potential that, that can be really beautiful. Um, and and I, th I think hopefully our conversation uh, as you listen uh, is, is enlightening, but also inspiring uh, to uh, th that, yes, it's hard to take a look at hard things, but it's also uh, there's incredibly there's great beauty that can come out of it um, as you as you do that. Yeah, I, practical story, right? So two yeah. days later, the plumbing was leaking under the kitchen sink <laughs> that I had just fixed for the eighth time. And I, I go get my tools. and I. But before I had done that, I sat down. God kind of did that moment with me. And I sat down with my kids. And I said, look, I don't want you, I don't want you to be a, like to live in fear when I do projects. Like, I don't want you to scatter really what I and I recognize what I do when I do that. And I, I want I want to ask forgiveness to recognize that uh, how that makes you feel. And then I want to work towards not doing that. So then the day later, the kitchen sink was leaking and we had already had that conversation and I opened the sink, got my tools out. And you know what? The coolest thing happened. It actually made me tear up a little bit and get choked up because Marley, my middle daughter, came over and sat down next to me and said, hey, dad, how can I help? Uh. Whereas before she went like they scattered. But we had this conversation and I confessed and I recognized who I, what was going on. And I confronted it and in, invited my kids to not 
live in that place with me anymore. And I got to experience a really cool moment after, like the outcome of that was that Marley entered back into relationship with me and we got to work on stuff together, you know, and um, I'm thankful for that. Uh, and not that I won't ever get angry again with pro- projects, but sure. but like Rob said, as a listener, we want to you know number one, we both struggle with things like this. And actually, Rob, you were you shared at the very beginning, and you never really talked about your own journey with this stuff. I would love to hear you share a little bit about that, maybe in a later episode. But um, these are things we you're not weird or crazy or you know singled out if you if you have things like this in your life. Um, but there is hope too, right? And I think that's what we're trying to we're trying to speak into your your life today as a listener yes. is that there is a way forward for sure. Yes, and we would encourage you to um, for personally, if you have them, to seek you know seek a mental health provider, seek a pastor, seek both. Uh, and also, we we plan to continue having these conversations. Uh, we we've got uh, lots of topics coming up. We want to continue to engage with these issues, and uh, we're thankful that you you came in to join us, and uh, we'll continue to dig into these issues as we move forward, staring into the sun. The way we find ourselves. Staring into the sun.